the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today we are joined by flores poro welcome flores thanks pleased to be here likewise we are excited to hear a little bit about flores's area of expertise and his background coming to software engineering uh for people who don't know flores flores do you mind introducing a little bit about yourself and how, how i ended up reaching out to you on the podcast that's an interesting story yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a little bit of a jack of all trades um, when it comes to uh, video engineering. Um, so uh, I, I always I started off doing uh, just general video uh, tech. So uh, working with projection, uh, multi-screen mapping, multi-projector mapping, that kind of thing. And then over time, I developed a hobby in programming and kind of got into the sort of IT engineering part of things. Uh, made a web platform at some point, um, and then started developing my own software for uh, for video production, for broadcast production. One of the reasons that I'm very enthusiastic to be asking you questions right now is that Flores is well familiar with a lot of really new technologies that are changing the world of broadcasting, of video and audio and what have you, uh, in real time, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, working at Stream My Events, Flores works with clients who want to stream live events over the internet. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about what technologies go into a live event broadcast. Technologies that go into live event broadcast, you can go really, really wild or really, really small. Um, and where, where I fall is kind of in the middle of that. So we, we tend to try and do a lot with a little. Um, and uh, there's a lot of stuff happening in broadcast production. A lot of things are moving open source and there's a lot of great initiatives that really uh, increase the level that you can reach with very little resources. And that's making it a whole, mo a whole lot more interesting recently. So one of the things you've described to me that our audience might not know is how different the bigger players are to the smaller players in the video production or live broadcast space. So when you when you describe that you guys are maybe scrappy, that you uh, are operating using open source tools that are, might be free software, can you give people a sense of what are those new tools or old tools that you guys use that maybe uh, the CNN of the world or the major media conglomerates might not use. Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, hang on. Let me let me think this through a little bit. Um, yeah. So it used to be that you needed to get a you know an outside broadcast van, an OBV, uh, you know, in front of a stadium, and you'd need a crew of thirty people or more uh, to set up you know any any kind of major broadcast and. These days, you can do a lot with just a computer, some open source software, and you know a couple, a couple of capture cards and, and small cameras that you have. It, the level of entry has really lowered so much uh, just with, with computers and software, um, and, and now open source uh, stuff uh, added, added to that mix. Um, one thing that we encountered a few years ago is we wanted to, to have live graphics uh, on, our, on our production. So, just be able to display, you know, when someone walks on stage, be able to display a little bit of a, you know, title uh, in the lower half of the screen that says who they are. Um, and we just found that it was basically impossible to get a, a good character generators, what they call it, um, in our productions for, you know, less than 20, 30,000 uh, uh, dollars. And so 
what we figured out is, well, why don't we do that just with HTML uh, and, and a WebSocket server to send, um, you know, impulses to that HTML layer. Um, and that eventually grew into an application that we built ourselves. And it's something that, you know, building that with uh, JavaScript uh, programming and, you know, reactive front-end programming, it's stuff that five years ago or 10 years ago, you couldn't have dreamt of. And now you can build a whole application with it. So it's, you know, it's that whole standing on the shoulders of giants thing where right now there's so much possible. You can tie together so much um, uh, with, with very little resources that we couldn't even a few years ago. This tool that you're alluding to that you guys built is called Holographic. And I'll include a link in the show notes for audience members who might be curious about it. But for people who may not grasp the concept, uh, we all might be familiar with uh, text that appears in video that we watch, but we all think maybe it's added after the fact. But what Floris is describing is, in real time, during a live broadcast, when Joe Blow walks onto the stage to accept his award, uh, how do live broadcasters add text to those live broadcasts that say, you know, Joe Blow winning award at the bottom. And uh, when it comes to interlacing and editing uh, video in real time, how, how did you f come to implementing holographic? How, how would one build a tool like that? Yeah, right. So there's there's a couple different parts to that, right? So one one thing that you might might be wondering about is like how how does this actually work to video wise? You know, because it's when you're dealing with live video, which is what we're dealing with. Um, you know, it's you can't jump into into Premiere Pro or or DaVinci or whatever editing tool you use. You it all has to happen live. And when you're doing live video processing, the amount of data that you're processing in real time is just massive, absolutely massive. And so there's very specialized hardware made just for that. There, it's called a video switcher. Um, and that hardware is specifically designed to, to handle and route sources of cameras in high definition and, and resolutions and frame rates um, in uncompressed raw video formats um, in real time. And so generally speaking, this hardware only does that. It's not just your computer, you know, it's, it's, it's hardware that is specifically industrially in designed to do specifically that. And so when you're dealing with live graphics, you, you kind of have the same thing, except live graphics now, they're all produced on computers. There is, it used to be that you could buy a box and all it would do is type characters into raw video formats. And that doesn't really exist anymore. So now what you get is a computer, a very specialized computer, not just running your, your average Windows 95. Um, it's a very specialized system that does only that. And that system has special input output cards that allow it to uh, pump real-time live video back into that video switcher. So there's kind of a, an, an element of specialized hardware in there. Now, how we went about uh, doing this with holographics is we built a, um, a rendering system that renders HTML back to video in real time. Now, this is also, we didn't invent it. It's a system called Electron, um, and it's a package that you can use for, for software development. Um, but what we did is we added uh, that to a hardware uh, pipeline. So we, uh, we can interface with popular hardware input-output boards for live video, and we pipe that live video from our HTML renderer directly into that board, and that allows us to go to professional video hardware. So to, to spell it out, when 
you are capturing maybe let's say one video camera capturing a live feed that video camera is plugged into one of these hardware switchers that takes the uncompressed version of video and then it maybe via HDMI goes to your computer where you're running holographic which you are controlling to add real-time text uh, and motion graphics and uh, it imposes an additional layer on top of the video um, imagery. That and is definitely one way one way of doing it. Okay. Um, it's not the way that you would find it, uh, say, uh, for the NFL. Um, they would have a different system. They would pipe the, uh, the video into the switcher as an overlay, and then the switcher will mix that. And that is just to make sure so that if the if all of the graphic systems go down, uh, your broadcast doesn't. Your broadcast stays running. Okay, gotcha. So which which of the two ways would you say holographic does it, or would you recommend? We're compatible compatible with both. So that, I think okay. that's that's the advantage of what we expose to the user is kind of that that HTML page, and the user gets to choose how they incorporate that into their live broadcast. One of the topics that we've talked before this episode about is how you use hardware, like the buttons on your keyboard or buttons on a dedicated piece of hardware to switch between camera angles or to uh, trigger the text graphics that you're describing. So do you mind walking our audience through the hardware that's on the market right now that maybe the CNNs of the world are using and maybe who uh, entry-level broadcaster might use to control switching between maybe two video cameras during a live broadcast? Yeah, sure. And so uh, I, I think I, I remember what you're what you're referring to. And um, I think a really interesting conversation happening right now is: should you go with a, a, a video switcher that is that specifically designed, you know, engineered piece of machinery that does literally that and only that? Or can you go with, say, a computer uh, with input-output cards that allow you to, say, input, uh, you know, 10, 8 cameras uh, and output your, your program feed maybe directly to a live stream or directly to television? And so what is the inherent advantage or disadvantage in the, both two, two methods? So we call them hardware or video switchers, right? So technically, a, um, a hardware or software switchers. So a... A hardware switcher is that specifically engineered thing and a software switcher is just a computer that runs specific software. Um, and um, so a reason why you might choose between those is one of them is budget. So a hardware switcher is that is specifically designed for this purpose and that makes it very expensive. But there are companies now that are producing them for a lot less money, say Blackmagic Design or Data Video. Um, and so they're becoming cheaper, and that is really uh, lowering the, the cost to, ent to entry for the next generation broadcaster. Now, uh, software switches do have some inherent advantages, but they also have some disadvantages. So an advantage might be that um, you can do a lot with a, a software switcher, and you can reprogram it, right? So you can upgrade your software and increase capabilities. With a hardware switcher, you're, you'll always be limited to what the, the hardware inside the device can do. Um, uh, additionally, there is, a, there is a disadvantage to software, which is that there's latency. There will always be a couple frames latency. 
And um, let's say you're doing a sports match or something with music and you are feeding your, uh, your program feed, your switched program feed back into the screens um, in, in, the, uh, in the audience, they are going to see that with some delay. And that makes it really tough to watch because especially like say classical music or someone singing to see them on the screen singing with delay makes it yeah hard hard to look at um so hardware switchers generally don't have this delay or it's too too short to notice so that's one big advantage for a hardware switcher is that there is no processing delay uh, at all or noticeable pro processing delay so I guess uh, the hypothetical of a uh, music performance is you have a projector or you have a TV display next to the live performer to provide a zoomed in view of the performer. And so for exactly. audience, audience members in person, it looks weird to see somebody mouthing a word that they only hear a half second later, perhaps. But for remote audiences, that's less of an issue, I suppose. Totally, yeah, totally less of an issue. Now, another another reason why you might not go with a software switcher or you might want to have uh, might want to have hardware is um, there is a bit more redundancy if you go with hardware. So you know the the biggest thing that can happen is a power failure. But generally generally speaking, your switcher will never crash because it's just this industrial thing. Um, a computers, on the other hand, they crash, right? So. Um, there is a, a big inherent risk in running everything through a computer. And um, uh, with, with a computer as well, there is just all of the, you know, the audio, the graphics, the switching, the input-output control, the streaming, it's all on one single device. And so if that one single device fails, you lose all of that. Whereas if you have a, a hardware-based pipeline, you might lose your video, but people might still be able to hear. And, or, or the other way around, you know? So that, that could be a big part of, of the decision-making process, but it's all to do with budget. And I'm, I'm the first person to say that you can do so much with, uh, with dedicated software switching uh, computers now that it's, um, uh, there's really big advantages to, to setting up your production that way and a lot lower cost to entry because there's open source tools that, that will do this for you. This is a perfect segue to my next question, which is, in relation to coronavirus and largely people in the world uh, being told by their governments to stay home and not uh, congregate and uh, gather together in close physical spaces to produce live video or <laughs> other types of video productions, I'd guess that a lot of the bread and butter of your guys' business are um, remote live streams where clients of yours might want to hold uh, sales or training webinars, which are uh, performed by people on their laptops, maybe, uh, and you cannot necessarily uh, coach them through setting up nicer cameras, hardware switchers, <laughs> or uh, controlling the streams themselves as customers of yours. So what is it like in this era to be, you know, a remote broadcaster? Uh, what are, what are some of the common tools that uh, you see in the industry? Yeah, sure. So the, the funny thing is that this is changing so fast. It's been one of the fastest developments I've seen in our industry ever. And um, uh, I'm, I'm on a couple of forums as well. And I see this change happening everywhere. Everybody is just 
you know, hitting the ground running when it comes to setting up uh, remote uh, control rooms and remote interview and presentation systems. And um, it, it's really cool to see what, what's happening in the community because everywhere people are now developing tools and coming up with systems to make this easier and quicker. Now, what we saw in the beginning of all this, when, you know, the lockdown was first starting in Europe, we saw a lot of events try and convert to a virtual event. And so we did a few events for big corporate uh, companies that, um, uh, you know, they, they might have had a leadership event set up with hundreds of people flying in from all over the world. And with very short notice, we would have to figure out ways to convert those types, types of events to fully virtual ones. And uh, so we came up with a few ways to just use the tools they're familiar with, say, Zoom US or Microsoft Teams or Skype to convert those tools into systems that they can use to come into a, a live stream. Um, and we would bring in several presenters using several different computers um, and set them all up as inputs on our hardware switchers and you know make the nice picture-in-picture -picture, uh, frames and everything that you, that you want, mix the audio properly, and then send that back out as a live stream. And um, so we, we try and use the tools that they're familiar with. Now, as this has all progressed, we are starting to see events that have been thought of to be completely virtual events from the ground up. Um, so they're fully conceptualized as virtual events. And, and it's really, really interesting to see, you know, uh, marketing departments and, um, uh, and agencies come up with new ways to make those virtual events enticing. One thing that you see all over is, of course, adding some level of interactivity um, uh, and finding ways to have breakout sessions and having people interact to kind of bring back that sort of networking feel that you would on an actual event. Now, technically speaking, uh, I would say some of the tools we use are still uh, Skype. I'm very fond of Skype because Skype has a feature that allows you to integrate with many software switchers. It has NDI integrated. And one of the things we, uh, we ask people to do is um, if they dial into our live event, we will uh, ask them to share their screen um, and using NDI integration with Skype, we can pull in their screen uh, and their webcam as two separate feeds. So we can switch between them, which means they can present you know, their PowerPoint or their keynote or whatever on their screen as they would normally. And we get to kind of decide when's the best moment to show uh, their face or their presentation or maybe show them side by side, make sure their audio is still mixed properly. So that, that really, um, really adds some production value. So these, these customers are uh, enlisting you guys as the remote control, uh, real-time broadcast editors of perhaps a multi-person presentation. Is that it? Yeah, you, you could say that. You could say that. Um, it, it's, it's more the, uh, the live stream production part of it. So what we'll do is we'll bring in those presenters as uh, remote, uh, remote feeds. We can talk to them, um, you know, separately. That's called an interruptible feedback loop. Uh, so we can talk to them and say, hey, you're up in 10 seconds, you know, five, four, three. And then they go on screen. They get a little indicator. It says you're live now. Um, they, they do their thing. And then we come back to either central studio or maybe there's some voiceover saying, okay, now we're going to the next person who is, you know, in, in Canada. And meanwhile, we're counting them down. So yeah, so we, and we will then broadcast that as a live stream to, you know, 
the thousands of people watching online. It is, are there native tools to Skype that, uh, that you use, or do you use something like OBS to stitch together your different video inputs? What, uh, what, are, what are kind of the, the tools for driving these fully remote uh, live streams? Yeah, so obviously there is a couple of tools that have all the functionality included, right? So with, with Zoom US, for example, you have the ability to host meeting rooms and assign a presenter. Uh, Zoom also has a webinar function. And with those tools, it's kind of your one-stop shop. But what we do generally is we create our own video feed and then we pipe that into a tool. So we either, um, uh, we either use our video switchers to, to create an RTMP stream and then we put that into a CDN like YouTube or Facebook or something custom. Um, or we, we use one of those meeting room tools uh, and then we, we put the video back into that. So we, um, we, we make sure that the, the input and the output are fully separate to get maximum redundancy. Um, now, um, that's not the only way to do it, of course. We, we can use, uh, we, we use a combination of hardware and software switchers for that. So we will use OBS as a really good option, but vMix is a very good paid alternative. It, I believe it starts at something like $80. Um, and we use that a lot as well. Uh, and then you can put the output stream, the output feed of that directly into Zoom or Microsoft Teams or Skype or whatever you're using to, to dial people in. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, this, these are all uh, <laughs> new times for a lot of people. I think one of the things that I've seen on the job a lot is people's excitement about real-time green screens and <laughs> that functionality of Zoom. Uh, people get a lot of joy out of changing their faces into potatoes or making their background uh, another video feed on loop. Uh, those are those are really interesting problems and uh, or solutions, I suppose. But one that I saw very recently this past week is uh, a tool called Avatarify, which uh, over overrides your webcam input and converts your face to um, a deep fake so you can yeah. become brad pitt you can become maybe a potato <laughs> you can become mona lisa uh i'll include a link in the show notes if people are curious about it but interestingly uh zoom i guess uh has prevented people from using such a tool by uh preventing virtual webcams from being used as inputs for zoom video uh, but this, this is such a interesting area of real-time video uh, editing, <laughs> I suppose, or overriding, um, but it, it's be, interesting. It's, I, I'm, I would be surprised if, if Zoom was able to single out a virtual webcam over a real one. I'm, I, I'm not sure how they would tell, be able to tell the difference. In the may, background, it's all the same driver handling it. It may be that, uh, it may be that there, it can detect there's some latency in how the camera is being rewritten and there's some delay. And so Zoom might uh, disable cameras that it can tell are being mm. futzed around with. Or uh, I myself haven't looked too much into the details of implementation. Maybe, maybe it has something to do with how Avatarify is implemented that makes their video output uh, not compatible with Zoom in some way, but 
if you want to try this with Zoom, as I understand it, you have to download an older version of Zoom pinned to a specific version and not update. Uh, maybe that'll change. I, I see what you mean, yeah. It, it does seem to be a, a Mac-only issue, mm -hmm. um, where in, on the 23rd of March, they disa disabled support for virtual cameras on Mac, is what it says here. Yeah, this is a Mac-specific problem. But um, yeah, no, this is, this is a really interesting issue. I mean, I was just watching yesterday. I work at Netflix, and Netflix is being a com public company. There's quarterly earnings announcements. And along with that, they now do video live streams. And in time of coronavirus, you can tell that this is being conducted from the executive's home offices or kitchens, <laughs> depending on where they choose to set up their uh, laptop with a webcam. Um, but yeah, this, this is such a universal uh, need right now. Uh, I'm sure that the work that you guys are doing is business critical and it's probably so much uh, of a relief for so many people, like a hundred people traveling to us uh, onsite. Um, there's probably a, a lot of budget savings on plane tickets and hotels, but B there's a lot of uh, stress on the, on clients parts to make sure that things go off without a hitch. Um, are there things that, uh, people should be aware of in live productions, live streams from feeds like Zoom or Skype about lag or latency when it comes to having multiple presenters. Everyone has experienced the awful time drift of lag in talking with somebody. Um, is, are, there, are there tools within Skype? Are there tools within the video switching software that you guys use that uh, give you visibility and monitoring to that uh, metric? Um, so latency is always a concern, but what's important to note is that latency is um, something you can use as well. So if you're able to, if you have a tool that allows you to increase the latency, that generally speaking will increase the reliability of whatever you're watching, mm -hmm. right? So if you're watching a live stream on YouTube or Facebook, you'll notice that it almost always, it runs pretty well. Whereas if you're on Zoom or Skype, you might be all too familiar with uh, people breaking up and you suddenly don't hear anything anymore. Their video cam goes really bad. And the reason that is that those tools are all specifically made to keep latency as low as possible. So you, there, it's a trade-off. You, you, you sacrifice latency for quality and for reliability. And that, that is also a big reason why we always try when we're doing a stream to thousands of people we always try to put that through some kind of cdn and we try and um and shape the interactivity aspect of it so that a latency of 30 seconds to a minute is not a problem so say we're doing a quiz we we will open up the quiz a minute before the question actually gets asked so we make sure that we we kind of compensate for the latency part of it and that will generally really increase the reliability. Now, of course, when you're dealing with remote presenters, you don't have that option because you want to be able to interact with the remote presenter. So you, you got to keep the latency uh, low and that you can only really do that with real time communication tools like Skype or Microsoft Teams. And a couple things that can help. You can tell people not to use Wi-Fi to be on cabled Internet. You can also 
tell them uh, you know if they're using a VPN to stop using a VPN because that will add a lot of uh, a lot of uh, lag to the connection. Um, and telling them to use headphones is also a, a big one because that will allow you to uh, not hear an echo um, basically. And then audio-wise, what we do with remote presenters is we send them a so-called mix-minus feed. That means that when we get audio from them, we mix that into our program feed. And our program audio, you know, that contains a presenter in our studio locally, um, we only send audio back to them that doesn't include them, you know. So the remote presenter never gets their own audio fed back to them. And so they can never hear themselves with, you know, a two second delay because that will really mess you up. If you're hearing yourself with a two second delay, it's almost impossible to keep talking. Um, <laughs> it's actually really funny to do that with someone. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, so, yeah, that, that it's called a mix minus. Um, and we add an interruptible feedback uh, channel to that, which means that our, our director can then also talk to them separately. So you can interrupt the channel going back to the remote presenter and say, hey, you're on in 10 seconds, five, four, three. And then he closes that off again. And then, you know, the presenter can do their thing. When it comes to that uh, planned latency, like you're describing, where you might have seven seconds, 20 seconds planned latency and queuing up the quiz ahead of time, uh, what are what are the really cool interactivity tools that you see customers using uh, or or what what products that offer interactivity tools do you think are the most interesting and promising and if someone is conducting a live broadcast they should consider using um so for the most part, the interactivity that we are still seeing now is uh, questions and answers that's it's still throughout all of this, that is still the thing that people need most. Um, and then second to that, there is uh, polling. So let's say you need to get your audience's opinion on something. Um, and then uh, I would say the, the next one up on the list is something that adds a competition part to it. Let's say a quiz uh, or something that keeps the audience captivated to the content. So let's say you've just had a, an hour long talk and now you want to do a quiz. Make sure they've actually understood this. Um, and the differing, uh, differing things you need might require different solutions. So if you just want to chat with your audience, they can use the comments on whatever system. So it might, might be YouTube or Facebook. Every, almost every platform includes a commenting system. If you want to do a proper Q&A where they fill in a question and the, the questions get moderated and then they get filtered through to the presenter in some way, you kind of already need something that is a little bit more dedicated. But there are some platforms that support this. Uh, Vimeo, for example, Vimeo has a, a live streaming part of it uh, to it. And um, that allows you to have a Q&A. People can submit them. You can filter them, etc. Um, and then the third thing, if you want actual complex interactivity like polling or, um, uh, or a quiz, generally speaking, you're looking at some kind of second screen solution. So that means that the audience watches the stream on one device, say their laptop, and then they, they participate in the interaction on a second screen device, say their phone. So what, what they will generally do is um, you'll get a, a link to go to, like uh, blah, blah, blah.interactive.com, and then a code. So something like five characters that you type into a field, and then bam, you're in the interactive portion of the, of the second screen uh, thing. 
And then when when we queue up that interaction part and that comes up on your second screen device and you get to interact in whatever manner is required for that interaction. Um, and so there's a few tools available for that. You can look at Kahoot uh, or you can look at Jewelbox. Um, I would I would have to say they're all priced though. So none of these are really free and uh, I haven't really seen a good open source solution pop up for this yet. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully there will be something for that in the future. Totally. I one thing I've read about people using is creating a Slack channel or a dedicated Slack instance for their live streams, which would be, I guess, qualifying as a second device. Uh, is that on the one hand you've, you're watching the video feed, and on the other you have Slack open and are submitting questions, and the the host uh, or hosts can read the interactivity happening on Slack. Uh, one, one issue, I, I, I know that Zoom and, and Skype and Google Meet can handle a large number of participants, but one level of interactivity that people are probably curious about is asking their questions over their own video and audio feed. So maybe joining the Zoom or uh, being allowed to switch to an audience member's Zoom or Microsoft Teams uh, video and audio input. Is that something that you guys have explored is handling large audiences and taking audiences questions over uh, Skype perhaps? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's, there's a few different ways of doing it. Um, uh, and none of them are really perfect. So the, the one thing is, is that, um, if you need to get an unprepared audio member in, you have no idea what the sound quality or the video quality is going to be like. Um, they might also, you know, if they're not a um, uh, a presenter that's been uh, that's been verified, they might might also do something strange on screen, you know, and then yeah. uh, that goes out to hundreds or thousands of people, yeah. which you you always want to try and prevent. Um, there's a few ways of doing it though. If you're hosting a meeting on Zoom, uh, you can assign a, a presenter and then uh, you can uh, you can mute or unmute people, uh, you know, by as a as a part of your moderation tool set. Uh, so that's one way of doing it. But then of course you're dealing with that whole latency thing. So the the quality is only um, you know the maximum available at low latency, which is generally very low. Um, and so if we are doing a stream where we, you know, we're going out to YouTube or Facebook, so we have that latency at our advantage, we're trying to really have high quality production value, then we might have one uh, Skype account free to dial in an audience member, um, have a quick chat with them and then say to the presenter, hey, we've got someone on the line here uh, joining us via Skype. Uh, they wanna say uh, this and this, and then we put them on. Um, so yeah, there are a few different ways of doing it. Um, it will. It, I I don't really think it will ever be as as cool as you know standing up uh, you know at an event with uh, a thousand people around you and having a microphone brought to you, but uh, it it's a way of doing it. Totally, totally. One of the questions I wanted to get to you is, are there any favorite live streams that you yourself watch, uh, whether Twitch or otherwise? Uh, are, is there any live content maybe, I mean, we can include sports, I suppose, that, uh, that you particularly enjoy? Well, I'm a, I'm a big uh, space buff, so I always watch the SpaceX uh, launches. 
And I, I think one one thing is, of course, you know, as a um, as someone who does live streaming for a living, I am just absolutely, uh, you know, astounded by how they're able to get all of those connections from the different rocket parts and from the, uh, you know, from the, the 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 landing platform. And it's it's just absolutely astounding to me how many connections they must have to get all of those camera feeds into their uh, into their systems. Uh, so that uh, that I always really like. Um, they're also really good with graphics. So they they've got a, a bunch of cool telemetry overlays um, uh, on all of their streams. And that, as someone who makes graphics software for a living, that also really impresses me. Um, and then you know whenever there is some kind of live event uh, like the um, uh, the the Philips uh, Felix Baumgartner, I think uh, the Red Bull Space Jump a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, that's that's always really, uh, really impressive to me when so many people come together to watch one live event. Makes sense. Makes sense. One of the one of the ideas that's been floated to the Axel Engineer show is to do them live. And I'm curious to hear your take on uh, how it might be done successfully. What, what do you think uh, a successful live Axel Engineer broadcast might look like uh, in contrast to what uh, the show is currently. Um, so I, I would be interested in uh, seeing what kind of questions the audience might have. Um, uh, of the webinars that I watch that I ha might be, haven't mentioned yet, um, the biggest ones are informational ones. Uh, so I'm, I'm a glider pilot, so I'm always looking at improving my, my skills as a glider pilot. And so I watch a lot of informational webinars by professional pilots that might have tips or whatever. Um, and the quality of those webinars is generally pretty low, like not, not close to the kind of thing that we would produce ourselves. Um, so my, my point, I guess, is, is content is king always. And so generally speaking, the technical way of doing it is, uh, is, is not, shouldn't really be the first concern. It should always be, how can I make this as interesting as possible uh, to the audience. Um, and if you do something really, really badly, but it's super interesting, the audience will still do that, will still prefer that way more above something that's done really well, that's just not interesting. Um, so I think that would be the first thing, add to this a level of, you know, try and get some, some guests on that uh, people might be looking out for, uh, that they might be really interested in hearing from live. Um, or it, it, or guests that might have something really informational to share um, that is uh, going to help them in their everyday lives somehow. Are there any specific tools you prescribe to uh, a podcast on a low budget who want to have maybe a second device interactivity tool? Um, I mean, I, I suppose by using a YouTube or a Twitch to broadcast, we can take advantage of their live chat functionality. I you suppose. can do a lot with Twitch. Yeah, Twitch has a lot of integration uh, facilities, and um, especially with Twitch Commons, you can. There's people who programmed, uh, you know, Twitch streams where uh, they do playthroughs of games. So let's say they they have a, a Game Boy uh, Pokemon uh, emulator running, and then Twitch members they they leave comments to say which button should be pressed at which time. And then they complete entire games that way. Um, wow! <laughs> so there, there's definitely a lot possible with with Twitch and Twitch comments. Totally, totally. 
I suppose one thing you lose in using Twitch as your live streaming platform is granular control over the latency. So I guess that they, in order to have high quality of video, might lean towards higher latency. Is that is that something that you might have control over with a Twitch or a YouTube or what do you think? So with with latency, um, it's I believe it's an exponential problem. So let's say you want sub-second latency, that is really difficult. If you're fine with your latency being 10 seconds, 15 seconds, which is enough for a lot of interaction, um, then generally speaking, it's not such an issue anymore. And I think Twitch lives around that range. So around the 10 to 30 second range, which is, is okay for interactivity. One, question that's always been on my mind with as live streaming has become more common on different platforms youtube twitch facebook etc is how come these platforms don't warn audience members about the latency how come there isn't some indicator that uh, you are this many seconds behind or um, that kind of that kind of visibility so at least audience members don't feel unheard you know yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I can I can sort of tell you why. Um, now, I, I can add that there is a function in YouTube that is called Stats for Nerds. If you right click a YouTube video, you can pull this up. And I believe in there somewhere is the current latency for your player uh, entity. Um, now, the problem is that latency can be different for everybody. And there is a, a latency factor, uh, there, a latency factor gets added at at a lot of different stages of your your live video that you're watching. There is your encoder that has a buffer, then that's sending that to a CDN that has a buffer on both the input and the output side. Now, the, on the output side, it can build up a variable buffer, so that can uh, get grow grow or shrink depending on kind of the amount of viewers and a, a bunch of different factors. And then on the viewer side, there is also a couple second buffer. So it's really hard, I would say, to, to tell the audience exactly how many seconds are between something actually happening and it being shown on a stream. Really difficult, I would say, to get that exact statistic. One of the ideas I just had is to put a clock in the background of your video. <laughs> Obviously, people don't have highly calibrated uh, clocks, I don't think, or clocks that show seconds usually, but that I could imagine that being one simple way to encode and demonstrate what the wall time is at the location where, uh, the producer of the feed is, but sure. Yeah. We, we do that sometimes. What we will have is we'll have a test pattern with a specific time code. And then on the second screen, we'll have the stream running. And then we'll take a picture and we know exactly how many frames are between the two. So that, that, is a, that is a very accurate way of measuring. The big problem is it's variable, right? So depending on the, the front end player, the, the, the delay can increase or decrease over time. Gotcha, gotcha. That is a tricky issue. Do you see any uh, technological leaps forward ahead of us when it comes to latency just coming down and reliability oh yeah up. absolutely yeah, yeah definitely there's a lot of work happening in reliability protocols 
So already there are technologies now that will that definitely increase the reliability of live streaming. So and anyone who's ever done live streaming, they'll they'll know the term RTMP, real-time messaging protocol, I believe, which is a a way of sending packets of real-time data over the internet um, uh, and making sure they they arrive in a uh, in a sorted manner. Um, the problem with that protocol is it's really old, really, really old. And it, it came from the flash days and those days are long gone and no one's really came come up with a much better protocol since then. But all of the encoders and all of the platforms, they all still use RTMP. So it, it's about time someone invented something a lot better. And as a protocol, RTMP is not a super reliable way of, of transmitting stuff. Like the, the first sign of trouble, it will crash into something. Um, your internet drops for five seconds could be that the stream will resume perfectly no problem at all could also be that you you know have an explosion and your computer starts smoking it's like it's rtmp is unpredictable Um, and so there's work happening on new protocols there is srt uh, not the subtitle format but secure reliable transport um, and that is an open source format uh, made by High Vision, a company that makes video encoders. Um, and they're doing a lot of good work at improving the reliability of, of live streaming. And I even did a, a local test where I introduced a 40% packet loss. So that is a massive amount of packet loss and still got a reliable stream uh, over a local network. Um, so that's that's pretty exciting. And one thing that is exciting about that is that you can set the amount of latency that you would like. So you can increase or decrease the latency depending on the, uh, the network conditions at your location. So if you know, well, network really sucks for whatever reason, you can set it to, you know, 15 seconds. If you know the network is great or, you know, you want to sacrifice quality for latency, you can set it to two seconds, something like that. Gotcha. Yeah, these are things that I think uh, we can all look forward to. Although I know how hard in the land of software engineering it is to drive uh, protocol adoption because you have uh, multiple commercial players whose interests are not aligned. Uh, there's competing standards. So I can imagine why this, this may still be a, a few years off. Uh, yeah, definitely. It's a it's a slow march, but it's happening every year now. There there are more pieces of software that uh, have support for this, and uh, VLC and uh, Open Broadcaster Studio now have support for SRT. So and, and that is the first reliable protocol that they've added support for. So it's definitely heading in the right direction. Gotcha, gotcha. Does OBS? Uh, I guess it's not so much whether OBS supports SRT, but it's whether your destination streaming server supports SRT. Does Twi- Do you know if Twitch or YouTube Live or Facebook Live support SRT yet? None of them do at the moment, which is a real shame because that, that, you're right, is the absolute game changer. Once those platforms start supporting those protocols, you can, um, you can really start using it. Now, uh, clever people have found a way around this though. What they'll do is they'll host their own cloud server on Amazon or, or Google or Azure or whatever. And they will put up a little application there that takes in the SRT feed and then converts that to RTMP and pipes that into the the destination place. So YouTube or Facebook. And that will allow you to go from whatever your location you're at 
um, go with SRT to your kind of proxy server. And then from there, you go to your destination. Now, the big advantage is if you're at a location with bad internet or you want to stream over 4G or, or a similar protocol, um, you can do that with a reliable uh, transport mechanism like SRT. Um, and so that will allow you to increase the reliability. Of course, it's, it's a lot of work for uh, a small increase in reliability. Um, there's a few other ways of doing it. One thing we sometimes do is we broadcast from our sort of unreliable location to a reliable location where we pick, pick up the stream and, and rebroadcast it again. And the advantage of that is that if our, our, our stream from the unreliable location goes down, we can put up a little image that says we're working on getting the stream back and our live stream event will continue, you know? So rather than if the stream just stops, people will go away and they'll think, oh, well, this has ended. Totally, totally. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's surprising that the popular stream hosting providers like Twitch, YouTube, etc., don't provide you that. I guess their interests are not aligned with yours in that if a feed is down, they'd rather you move on to a different, uh, maybe competing live feed. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. But also I have to say, it's not super technically easy to set that up. Um, mm. And it will it will require more resources. So it's you, you, you get basically an additional processing computer somewhere, pro- reprocessing that video and rebroadcasting it. So it's definitely not uh, not that easy to do. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, in the midst of all of our conversation, I think we've created the largest show notes of any given episode of The Excellent Engineer before. So I'm looking forward to uh, audience members checking that out and, and, and checking out all of the different types of live streaming technologies out there. This has perhaps been the most unique Excellent Engineer episode ever <laughs> covering this subject matter. So thank you, Floris. This has been awesome. Yeah, no worries, no worries. Great to be here. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.